Well, Martin Luther, and if that's a name you're not familiar with, uh, it, you would do well to get to know who he was, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther said, there are three conversions necessary in a person's life when they come to Christ. One, conversion of the head. Two, conversion of the heart. And three, he said, there needs to be a conversion of the pocketbook. And I believe he is absolutely right about that. In fact, that's one of the reasons Jesus talked about it so much in the Gospels. And it's the reason we've been spending these weeks talking about financial freedom. Now, I want us to look again at the definition we've been using as sort of a working definition. I think there's a lot packed into this. We have defined financial freedom as a profound, satisfying contentment marked by the absence of greed and release from anxiety and worry about financial matters. Now, you can be financially free and have relatively little. Or you can have a whole lot and be financially free, but contentment is a huge piece of that puzzle. And just to recap, what we've said during these weeks is that there are really three positive habits that people who live financially free practice on a consistent, regular basis. The first one we called living within your means. And that's the week we talked about avoiding the debt trap and not getting caught up into debilitating debt that just spirals you down and out of control. Live within your means. Then last week, we talked about that second habit of actually living with a margin. That means choosing to live at least one step below your means so that there's always something left over. It could be challenging to get started, but those who live that way will tell you it's one of the greatest blessings in their lives. And then today, I want to wrap up this series by talking about the benefits of giving. Because everyone I know who would fit that definition and is living financially free will tell you that generosity is a huge part of that equation. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see, catch this part, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. One thing I know about you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has as a goal for your life and mine that we would excel in generosity huge part of living the abundant life, the life God has designed for every one of us. So here we go. Let's talk about, there are probably many, many more we could highlight, but I want to mention just four today of what I would call the benefits of giving. The first one is rather straightforward. It's simply to obey God's command. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Now, what are some of those instructions in God's word about giving? We can't look at them all, of course, but let's highlight a few of them right now. One would be 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you 
should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, according to that, one of the principles of giving is that it should not be just this occasional response to an emergency appeal. Nothing wrong with that, but the kind of giving God is looking for is consistent and proportionate. Consistent and proportionate. But what does that look like? I mean, how do you determine what God considers to be generous? Well, let's suppose that tomorrow is a special day in your life, and so you're gonna take tomorrow evening eight of your friends out for dinner for a special evening together. And you go to your favorite restaurant in the capital region, you make the reservations, and you actually ask for your favorite server there, someone who's you've gotten to know maybe through the years. And so he does a great job, and it is a fabulous evening. And you know that at this restaurant, there is in fine print on the menu a little line that says, a gratuity of 15% will automatically be added to parties of eight or more. You know that. You're good with that. And you get your bill, and you check it over carefully, and you realize no gratuity has been automatically added. And then you get it. You see, because of his relationship with you, the waiter is saying, look, I trust you to add the tip as you see fit. He's probably hoping for more, but you measure generosity by the standard of 15%. Now, when God gave commandments from Mount Sinai to his old covenant people, he said in, as recorded in Leviticus 27, a tithe. Now, a tithe, that word literally means 10%. It means one-tenth, 10%. Of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And by the way, all throughout the Old Testament, God's people were assessed that 10%. Now, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace today. But the truth is, we've been given so much more as new covenant believers than they had. For instance... We have the completed canon of Scripture. God's breathed word, his inspired word, all of it to nurture our souls and feed us. What's more, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. They didn't have that. The Spirit kind of did things, but it kind of came and went. The Spirit came and went. And today, God lives within us by his spirit. We have sweet fellowship with believers. We have a church that God is blessing. We live in a country that happens to be the most prosperous probably in all of history. Many of us enjoy fabulous health and amazing family blessings. So when you ask how much should we give because of his relationship with us, God says, look, just give as you've been prospered. And I would urge you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not currently tithing, to make that a goal in your life to begin that practice. A second scripture I think we should look at is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. It says, each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, here's the principle there. 
God wants our giving to be cheerful. And I think that's, I think that's understandable, don't you? I mean, you don't want somebody throwing a gift at you and sneering, well, I knew it was your birthday and I had to get you something. I didn't want to spend this much money, but I knew you'd be upset if I didn't, so here it is. What? No, you'd rather get nothing at all than to get a gift given with that attitude. I want to be clear about this. God doesn't want you giving to the church out of a sense of compulsion or obligation. He wants you to give as a genuine expression of your gratitude. I mean, just thankfulness that's welling up out of your heart for all the amazing things God has done in your life. Ever so often, I'll have a conversation with someone and they'll say, Pastor Rex, I really want to tithe, but my spouse doesn't agree with it. What should I do? And my answer is always the same. I say, look, talk about it and agree on an amount that you can, amount you can both agree to and give it cheerfully. And do not let giving become a point of contention or disharmony in your home. God takes note of the attitude as much as the amount. Another passage I think we ought to look at is Acts chapter 4. It says, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So what we see in the New Testament is that these early believers gave submissively. That is, they gave with a sense of no strings attached to this. I find that interesting. The record was they didn't just give directly to the poor and needy persons in their midst. Instead, they brought it to the leaders of the church and trusted their collective wisdom in the stewarding of those resources. Now, some Christians I know don't do that. Uh, they distribute their own tithe, if you will. They give a little to the church. They give a little to a missionary they happen to know in China, maybe a family member or something who's went on a mission uh, quest and uh, serving God there. Maybe they give some to a parachurch group they believe in and then some to a grandchild so they can go to a camp in the summer and, and they consider that their tithe. Now, this is a conviction area but the Old Testament speaks about bringing our tithe into God's storehouse. And the New Testament talks about laying it at the feet of the leaders for their collective wisdom. It's a humble act to respect the combined wisdom of leadership, and it certainly takes the ego out of it. And I want to tell you, you're probably not going to be thanked as profusely. Nobody's going to be calling you up and lavishing thanks on you because just a few people know what is given, a few people in the business office. But I believe there is New Testament precedent for that. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's great to support missionaries, kids at camp, parachurch groups, etc. 
But that ought to be over and above the tithe. The Bible speaks of tithes and offerings. It's my conviction. This is what Debbie and I practice, and it is what we preach, that our tithes should go to the church where our lives are planted and we're invested and where we're being nurtured and growing in our Christian life. And anything above that is an offering given with gratitude to wherever God may direct us. By the way, there's all kinds of ways that we can give. Many through the years have given stock donations. That's easy to do. Our business office can help you with direction on that. Some others give through wills and estates. I think one of the best ways to give is online. I called our business office this week, or actually I emailed, and asked, what is the current percentage of giving online? and found out that it was 45%. Now, there's a whole bunch of churches that have less than that percentage. And I know some who have as much as 80% of their giving that happens online. I would love to see in the future that online giving to grow. Because here's what I hear from people who give that way. They all rave that it just took a few minutes to get started. But once you've set up that account... It's so quick, it's so convenient, it's so easy. Basically, it streamlines things for you. So I would urge you to consider that. If you have any questions about it, you can just call the business office here at Grace, talk to Tim Kong, director of the business office, or you can just email at giving at gracefellowship.com. That's giving at gracefellowship.com. Dot com, and they will help you by answering any questions you have. A second benefit of giving, though, is to get real about our priorities. I think a lot of times we as Christians go and go and go year after year, and our priorities are a bit out of whack. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'll hear occasionally someone say, now, pastor, I don't want to talk about money in the church now. I don't want God and money to be put together. I want to keep God away from the money topic. And then they'll go, Pastor, would you pray that our house would sell? And I want to go, now, whoa, wait a minute. I thought I heard you say your plan was to keep God out of your money. Now you're praying for me to get God involved with your money. No, no, they'll say... Could you just pray that I get that promotion? You know, land that big job I really want. Pastor, would you just pray that this investment we made really, really, really pays off? And I want to go, time out. I'm confused right now. I thought your plan was to keep God away from your money. And as you go on with the conversation, what you really realize is that, look, they want God to prioritize them, but they don't want to prioritize God. They don't want to honor God, but they want God to honor them. Why would God do that? Just ask him. Why would God honor someone who doesn't honor him? Why would he honor a system that actually promotes greed? To say the least, that is a weird prioritization. Now, you may be amazed to know that this exact conversation went on in the book of Malachi. That's what it was all about. The people under this old covenant were saying, God seems a little distant right now. 
Why does it seem like so many of our prayers just aren't getting any answer? Why does it seem like God is a bit removed from our daily lives? Why are things not working out? Why does it seem he's not honoring or blessing us? And God spoke through Malachi the prophet and sent them a message, chapter one, verse eight. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Why? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Malachi's basically saying, look, you're insulting God here. Bringing these sacrifices, you can't do anything else with anyway. You can't sell them or do something else with them. You're essentially saying, God, I give you my leftovers because you are not a priority in my life. But would you please bless me? And so God tells the people what they need to do differently to turn this around. Chapter three, verse seven. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So you wanna turn this around, he says? Look, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. By the way, folks, that isn't just true financially. That's true relationally. It's true vocationally. It's true in every aspect of the soulish and spiritual part of our lives. This principle is just true. God says, look, return to me. I'll return to you. Go back. Start doing the things I've asked you to do and see if some things don't begin to really change in your life. And then he goes on in verse seven, but you ask, how are we to return? Well, a man robbed God, yet you robbed me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. This is the only time, by the way, that God ever says in Scripture, look, test me. Go ahead. I dare you. Try it and see if things don't begin to turn around. What we do with our money is a huge indicator of where our priorities really are. And so when we give, we are saying every time we do, I am not possessed by my possessions. Every time we give, we're saying, this world is not my home. And every time we give, we're saying, my values aren't the world's values. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, there's a third benefit I want to mention, and that is to advance God's cause and kingdom. Now, I want to tell you, I get real pumped up about this benefit of giving, to advance God's cause and kingdom. If it is true that God is our creator and he created us for a purpose, and if it is true that us humans have been separated and alienated from God because of our sin and we are lost and without hope, if that's true, and if it is true that God addressed that dilemma by Jesus dying on the cross and atoning death for our sins 
so that we could be saved from the penalty of our sins, if that's true. And if it's true that he rose bodily from the grave, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave, and if it is true that today, from the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he gives us an offer and says, look, for everyone who repents and trusts in me alone and my death and resurrection as the basis for their salvation, I will forgive all of their sins, adopt them into my family, and begin to change them from the inside out. Folks, if that is all true, hear me. That is the most important message in the world. There is no other message more important than that. Nothing, nothing even compares to that. But what if it's not true? Well, I'll give you my opinion. For whatever it's worth, just my opinion. If all that I just said, if that message is not true, here's what I think we ought to do. I think we ought to dissolve this 501c3 organization called Grace Fellowship. We ought to lock the doors up, and all of us ought to find something meaningful to do with our lives. That's what I believe. But if it's true, this is the most important cause in the world. Now, I believe it's true. I've given my whole life to it from the time I was a teenager. And I take it from your sacrificial giving and involvement that hundreds of you agree, that you believe that as we pool our service, our money, our efforts, our prayers, and come shoulder to shoulder and serve God together, that his kingdom is going to advance. That's what happens. That's one of the benefits of giving. We're advancing God's kingdom. Jesus put it like this. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. The word nations there is ethne. It means people groups. It doesn't mean geopolitical entities. These are different ethnic groups. They're all going to hear the gospel and then the end will come. So what are we going to do? We're going to keep on sharing and preaching this gospel globally and locally with all of our might until the very end. And in the meantime, God is changing a lot of lives for his glory. Just two weeks ago, I had a conversation in the lobby that I think is not unusual. It's actually fairly typical of conversations I've had through the years. And this conversation gentleman had tears in his eyes because he wanted me to understand how God has used this church in his life. And he told his story. And he said, over 10 years ago, before I came here, my marriage was falling apart. My life was unraveling. I had addictions in my life. I, I, I was just beginning to feel hopeless and out of control. And someone, someone told me about this church and I came, and I couldn't believe it. Wow, has God used this church in my life? I've come to believe the gospel. I've given my life to Christ. The addictions have been beaten. Life is soaring spiritually. And then he grabbed me, and he said, I want you to know 
God has really changed my life. And I said, I believe it, I believe. <laughs> he grabbed me. He wanted to be sure I understood. I am a different man, he said, than I was back then. I could multiply those testimonies by the scores, the lives God has changed. Last night, we had two baptisms here, and there were two testimonies with them. And, and one of the testimonies, I heard a phrase that I've heard over and over again. I find it quite provocative. The guy on the testimony said, the first time I came to Grace, I cried through the whole service. Now, that was long before he actually came to faith in Christ. He said, but I just knew the Spirit of God was here. I knew something was different. Now, by the way, don't let that keep you from inviting your friends, okay? And you're like, oh, no, they're going to cry through the whole service. But I'm just saying it happens a lot when people get in the midst of passionate believers where the Spirit of God is working. I've heard other phrases like, oh, how I wish I'd known about grace years ago, or I, I couldn't believe how relevant the messages are to my life, or the people were so friendly. I'd never seen that in a church before. Or I didn't know church could actually be this much fun. Or the worship was amazing. The place is full of energy. God is alive in this place. Now, folks, Grace Fellowship is far from perfect. I hope you hear that. We got all kinds of challenges, and we always want to improve. I understand that certainly from my seat on this bus. Man, how we need to get better in so many ways. And we're gonna cooperate with God and work toward those ends to be the best witness, the best church, the most healthy community we can be for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wanna tell you, God is changing a lot of lives here. And when we give, we are advancing his kingdom and his cause. But there's one final benefit I wanna mention today and that is, when we give, we posture ourselves to be blessed by God. I really like this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. It says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I mentioned this two or three weeks ago. But God has put a principle of sowing and reaping in this universe, and it's not just financial, it's in all kinds of ways. Now, hear me. Giving to receive is not a noble motive. It's certainly not the highest motive. But we are promised throughout Scripture, I find it staggering actually how many promises there are, that if we honor God in this way, he will pour out blessings on it. Let me just mention one of them. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap for the measure, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There it is. You give generously, God says, I'm gonna bless that. I am going to return it to you. You are gonna be richly blessed. It kind of reminds me of that Sign way out in the middle of nowhere on the old country road. The sign along the road said, George Jones, veterinarian, taxidermist. Either way, you'll get your dog back. 
I love that. Oh, I love that. You gonna get that dog back. One way or another, you're gonna get him back. God says, you're gonna get it back. I am gonna honor you when you honor me in this way. It may not be financial. It may be blessings of family, health, spiritually, emotionally, etc. Now, I, I gotta tell you, whenever I teach this biblical principle, I always am a bit concerned. Here's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned that when I teach this biblical, and I always feel this way, I'm concerned that somebody out here or somebody listening online is gonna go, oh, I get it, pastor. I think I got your takeaway here. What you're really saying, brother, is that God is like a cosmic vending machine. And if I just punch the right buttons and put my money in here, woo, baby, my cup's gonna overflow. Hey, thanks for telling us, pastor, about this investment opportunity. Because when I give, I'm not really giving to God, I'm giving to me. That's what you're really saying. If that's what you believe, your heart motive is all wrong. Timothy Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, tells a story that I think beautifully illustrates the importance of motive in giving. He writes, once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said, wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. Ah, but there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, whew, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Even though you wanted it to look generous, it was really all about you. So it really does come down to the motive of the heart. So I want everyone, everyone, everyone to hear this loud and clear. God doesn't need your money. If he did, he'd take it. Trust me, he'd take it. What God wants is your heart. And God knows this about you and me. Our heart follows our money. 
Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. According to scripture, there's nothing like finances to show us where our priorities really are. Well, as we wrap up today, this sermon and this whole series, I want to highlight one verse that to me has always been a bit puzzling. It's Luke chapter 16, verse nine, and I've read this through the years and it always causes me to pause and wonder exactly what it might mean. I tell you, this is Jesus talking, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, what in the world does that mean? I heard it described like this sometime back. Imagine standing before God one day, we all will, and give an account for our lives, and there we are in the awesomeness of his holiness. What a sobering moment. But thankfully, you hear a voice behind you, and the Lord says, this one belongs to me, Father. He belongs to us. He has trusted in my death on the cross for him, and I have saved him. His sins have been forgiven. He belongs to us. Admit him. And almost before those words are gone, another voice pipes in. And someone says, yes, Father, I'm here today because he gave generously and his church sent missionaries and supported people in Uganda where someone shared the gospel. And that's why I'm here today because of this generous believer He's my friend. And then almost before those words are gone, another pipes in and says, I don't know if he understands the impact he had in my life or not, but because he gave generously and his church supported grace in action, my single mom was given hope. He probably doesn't even know this, but she taught me about Jesus. And it's in part because of his generous giving that I came to know you, and I am here today. And almost before those words are gone, another voice pipes in with even more enthusiasm and says, because of this generous giver, I believe I'm here today. You see, I didn't grow up in a family of faith, but I went to that student ministry of that church he attends and supports, and I heard the gospel there, and I saw credible people living for God, and I gave my life to Christ and my sins have been forgiven, he's my friend too. And the Father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter your master's happiness. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, I sure do hope you know you can't buy your way into heaven. Only Jesus can pay that price, and that's the price he paid at the cross. But when you come to him humbly, admitting you're a sinner, and receive him as your Lord and Savior, listen, he forgives all your sins, and sets you on a new path, and one of the main things he wants to do in your life, in changing you, 
is to give you his giving heart. That is God's goal, that every one of us would grow and excel in the grace of giving. Father, we thank you that you've got big plans for us. Thank you, Father, that we can be a part of your kingdom cause in this world. There's no other message like it, no other kingdom, no other cause like your kingdom. What a privilege to be able to participate. Thank you for calling us into that. And that through using the gifts you've given and giving generously and participating in service, sharing this good news, we can be a part of the transformation of many, many lives. May we do that more faithfully than ever, especially at a time like this. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. amen.